As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. It's been a while since we've truly celebrated Jacques Villeneuve on this podcast, and I am being serious there. So for the final regular episode of Series 9, we're revisiting one of his greatest performances when he kept the 1996 championship battle alive with a classic victory in the Portuguese Grand Prix, a race most famous for his daring around the outside pass on Michael Schumacher at the fearsome final corner. After pulling off an overtake he'd predicted he'd be capable of, Villeneuve then hunted down the other Williams of title rival Damon Hill to deny Hill the chance to wrap up the championship a race early, ensuring there would be a title decider in Japan. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to spend most of the episode marvelling at Villeneuve's overtake and general brilliance, uh, and we'll probably talk about some of the other stuff as well at some point in the episode. There was other things going on in F1 at the time. We have Matt Beer and Ben Anderson, who were two of several potential guests uh, to enthusiastically volunteer to join us for this episode. So you, you always know you've got it right when a load of people come back. When, when I announce what the episodes are internally and a load of people come back saying, can I do that one? Um, so yeah, that was the case with Portugal 96. And Matt, we'll come to you first. When you think of the 96 Portuguese Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A brief but absolutely heartfelt certainty that Jacques Villeneuve was capable of anything. <laughs> not just because of, of the past, but because of the gap he closed down and how he turned that from a certain defeat into a victory. I was like, I was right about this guy. He, he is incredible. You've stuck with that, Glenn, 30-odd years later. I, I waned a little bit after, probably after this race, to be honest. But Yeah, I was going to say, now you know how I feel all the time. <laughs> <laughs> ben... Hello. For you, obviously, uh, is it the pain of having to wait a bit longer to see Damon become world champion? Is that your memory? I mean, obviously, a race like this where Damon tugs around and Jack Villeneuve <laughs> shows him up. I mean, I've tried to block it out of my memory over the past 30 years the best I can. But I do have one one very clear memory of watching this race on TV, and it is the pass. Villeneuve around the outside of Schumacher. I remember being astounded at the time at age 11 I must have been then uh, obviously doing a bit of go-karting as well myself just thinking that is awesome it's the I think it is and remains the best thing he ever did in Formula One <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not against that um, <laughs> yeah I I can genuinely 
there are you know there are things where you have a vague recollection of watching something or you've watched season reviews and old races and you can you kind of remember it i vividly remember being in my front room standing up when i when you see the nose appear on the left hand side of schumacher's <laughs> on board and just be like oh my he's going around the outside he's going around the outside and then they pull onto the straight and lavaggi's Minardi is in the way and I remember shouting at my dad going he's gonna get boxed in and I've been <laughs> devastated and then he pops out from behind a Minardi in front of Schumacher and I'm going no he's not being boxed in this is amazing um that that is yeah I I, I can research in this episode I can relive that moment and, and as if as if it was yesterday and it's not it's not yesterday it was a long time ago I was 10 um but yeah it's one of those things it is properly burned on the brain i knew i'd get that anecdote in at some point i didn't necessarily know it'd be right at the beginning because obviously we are going to talk about that overtake a lot more but before we get into the memories from our audience i wanted to let you know about a special offer we have running for the race members club at the moment obviously you hear us talk about the members club a lot here if you've been curious to try it out now might be your chance because if you sign up Right now, you can get your first month for free. So come along and check out what the Members Club has to offer, including, of course, plenty of bonus content from Bring Back V10s. And you'll get the remaining episodes of this series early and ad-free. If you stick around, you'll also get post-series bonus episodes, including uh, Members Only Ask Us Anything, of which I think there'll be more than one, given how many questions we've got. Matt and I are going to go through the 1999 F1 chapter of Alex Zanardi's pretty bombastic book uh, we're going to do that in full and you will of course get exclusive access to our new series of mini episodes where we will revisit every race from a classic f1 season take you on a journey from the season opener in melbourne to whenever the fi- wherever the final race might have been that's uh, that's your first clue we've had lots of people trying to <laughs> guess which season we're going to choose it doesn't narrow it down that much in the V10 era to say it's it's a season that started in Melbourne. Uh, but there you go. I'll sit you. Maybe we'll give you another clue before the end of the series. To get your members club trial, then check out the link in the description of this episode and prepare yourself to get all kinds of bonus content from the race in general as well, not just bring back V10s. But let's get on to the Estoril 96 memories now then with the help of our audience. For this one, we asked for your suggestions on Instagram, where you can find us at BBV10s. The last time we did this on Instagram earlier in the series, we got loads of new followers. So if you've not yet found us over there, now's your chance. And thank you to everyone who who swarmed over there after we mentioned it last time. We did say that you weren't obliged to pick the Villeneuve Overtake as your standout memory. But obviously we had lots of people choosing it, uh, including Lewis Sudderby, Mr. Liam, David Handy. Chris, Friendly Giant, Jordan Stevenson and Chris Fielder. And a shout out to Colza Clark, who came up with a round the outside rap to the tune of Eminem's song Without Me. Uh, I'm not going to do the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> oh, please. No, please, you have to. No, no. <laughs> um, Peter Truth. Wait, call yourself a Fielder fan. Call Come myself on. an Eminem fan as well. Um, Peter <laughs> Truth says, uh, would we even remember this race if it wasn't for JV's move? Uh, I think Ben would because of his heartache. A few people mentioned Murray Walker and Jonathan Palmer slagging off Giovanni Lavaggi, who, as I mentioned, was the other participant in this famous overtake. Uh, a couple of the quotes were uh, Lavaggi there because of his money. And I think Palmer called him desperately slow. 
So thanks to Timmy, Andy and Peter for that. And Claire says, losing count of how many times the Minardis were lapped, which wasn't <laughs> helped by Pedro Lamy breaking down at the start. And then he rejoined right in front of the leaders, which probably gave better heart attack. Um, David Murray, Ben Hawks, Neil Trivett and Jimmy Lynn all mentioned the McLarens of David Coulthard and Mika Hakkinen colliding in this race. Uh, DC famously, uh, he gives uh, Mika Hakkinen a middle finger while he's still spinning out, which is good. Uh, Yash, Aidan Delory and Yacht Racing all mentioned that this was the last Portuguese Grand Prix until COVID hit and Portimao stepped in in 2020. And Yacht Racing also recalls that Estoril was initially on the 97 calendar as the season finale and even appeared in the brilliant F197 game. Any chance to mention F197 uh, is always taken on this podcast. Uh, as well as following us on Instagram, make sure you join our community on X if you haven't already. It's a place to discuss anything you like about the V10 era and to celebrate the past. And we'd love to have as many of you there as possible. Communities can be quite tough to find on that app, um, like most things these days. So I'd recommend looking in the description of this episode again to find a link to it. and It'll take you straight there. And lastly, remember you can get all sorts of Bring Back V10's merch over at shop.the-race.com. We've got hoodies, t-shirts, mugs, baby grows, uh, even notepads and water bottles. And you can still get our calendar, um, which features classic images from the era. I'm really hoping that we've sold enough of those that we get to do it again for next year because it was a lot of fun going through old images to put that together but that's enough uh plugging let's take ourselves back to 1996 given the time of year there were lots of loose ends being tied up in the driver market the first one we'll cover is mika hakkinen getting a new deal at mclaren but curiously it was only a one-year extension to cover 1997 mclaren boss ron dennis said keeping hakkinen was the team's firm conclusion after an extensive evaluation to determine the best possible choice of driver for the available seat. Oh, Ron. Um, <laughs> Mercedes Norbert Haug said Hakkinen had come a long way since his accident in Adelaide at the end of 1995, and he believed Mika was ready to win races as soon as he had the right equipment. Hakkinen also talked of finally winning, saying that he wanted to end McLaren's losing streak that dated back to the end of 1993 to repay the team's loyalty towards him. But he also warned that talking too much about winning races was uncomfortable, while McLaren was a second off the pace being set by Williams at the front. Ben, I, I found this curious. Given the close bond between McLaren and Hakkinen, a contract extension doesn't seem like a massive deal, but is it surprising that they only gave him a one-year extension? Yeah, I mean, 11-year-old me just figured Hakkinen was McLaren's guy. You know, they he'd been so impressive coming in in late 93, you know, showing Senna up a bit, making a name for himself. They'd stood by him after the accident in 95. So to me, Hakkinen was just like a lock. But... Now we kind of know more about how challenging he found that situation recovering from that accident. It took him a long time to feel right. So you can imagine behind the scenes, McLaren are thinking, well, is he going to be the same driver that we started with? Is he just going to abruptly stop or drop off the cliff? We know there was interest in Michael Schumacher. Uh, Ron wanted to get Damon Hill in as well. So I feel like they're probably thinking, yeah, we've had a bit of a, a rough patch, but the Mercedes thing is is working out. We've got Newey coming on board, so let's 
let's try and find a trophy driver basically to spearhead spearhead a, a future championship charge so i guess they're with all that going on the one year deal in that context makes sense because they want to keep their options open but obviously as it turned out you know hackenham was was more than capable so um yeah, not, maybe not the most love shown to him, but I don't think he was in the most stable situation himself at that time. One McLaren contract offer that was rejected around this time was the one made to Ralph Schumacher to become the team's test driver in 1997, as Ralph decided to take up a race drive with Jordan instead. Ralph was on his way to winning the Formula Nippon title in Japan at this point, and he turned heads in the summer with a McLaren test that had prompted Ron Dennis and Mercedes to try to get him tied down. Ralph seemed almost surprised to have ended up as an F1 race driver for 97, as he said at the time of the deal being done that when discussing his future a year earlier, so this was late 95, with his manager Willy Weber and big brother Michael, they'd been talking about touring cars, so presumably the DTM. Naturally, Ralph's signing led to some claims that he'd only got to F1 because of his brother, which Ralph addressed, saying, The name brings you to the door, but to keep it open, you have to be quick yourself. If you're quick, the name's an advantage. If you're not, it's a disadvantage. Matt, where did you stand on this? Did you feel like Ralph got an easy route into F1 because of his surname? Yeah, at the time, I was adamant about that. I just didn't... Th- I thought it was too good to be... Too convenient to be true. It was too good a bit of marketing for there to be a second Schumacher brother who was F1 potential as well. I, w- I wanted Martin Brundle to keep a Jordan C. I, lo- I, th- I think Giancarlo Fisichella was linked to it by then as well. So I was like, I don't... I was against the idea of Ralph on principle and I didn't think his record was good enough. Looking back, actually... Macau Grand Prix winner by that time, Formula Nippon title at the first attempt. That's that's pretty decent, isn't it? That's actually very decent. It, if it had a different surname and not got to F1 with that kind of record, you'd, you might think that was a bit of a loss. So he's right. The surname put him in people's attention that he wouldn't have been in the attention of otherwise. But yeah, grudgingly, I'm going to say he did, he did deserve that chance. I can see the pain on your face. Uh, there, <laughs> yeah. There was an interesting... Uh, backstory to this deal is when Eddie Jordan initially approached Ralph, he didn't realise uh, a pre-contract agreement was in place with McLaren by this point. Eddie said in his book that Ralph's manager, Vili Weber, was using this as a bargaining tool, which he called typical of the way he operated. <laughs> uh, Jordan said Weber tried to do a deal that would include something to placate Ron Dennis and EJ was having none of it. He said, I did not want to know about their problems with McLaren. Either Ralph was free to sign or he was not. If not, forget it and we will have wasted each other's time. Sure enough, the McLaren issue was resolved without Jordan's involvement and Ralph was signed with Eddie already wondering if I really needed a driver and manager who gave me so much grief before we even got started. The lesson there, Eddie, is stop signing Schumachers because they're always <laughs> contractually. Um, ben, what did you make of Eddie's handling of this? Was he right to stand his ground and not get dragged into the McLaren side of Ralph's situation? Yeah, I think he was. Uh, I mean, he had history, as you mentioned, with the Schumachers and, and Vinnie Weber. He would have been very wary after the whole 91 situation and getting burned there. So I can well imagine him just going, look, you sort your own stuff out. All right. I'm if you've got some contract with Ron, you buy it out and sort it out yourself. I'm not getting sucked into your your rigmarole. I've been I've been burned the hard way before, so leave me alone. Plus, I don't think you know, Jordan was short of options, like Matt outlined a few drivers that are in contention for a team that was kind of upwardly mobile at that point. So I think I think EJ was in a strong position. Mm. 
Another driver sealing his future was Johnny Herbert, who signed a two-year deal to stay at Sauber amid speculation he was a top target for Jackie Stewart's new F1 team. We will come back to Stewart. Herbert said he had four reasons for choosing to stay on. Uh, firstly, the fair way he'd been treated at the team after such an unhappy year at Benetton in 1995. Secondly, the team's substantial backing from Red Bull and Petronas, two companies still prominent in F1 today. Um, thirdly, Sauber's focus to become a winning team. And then uh, somewhat cryptically, he said, finally, I'm aware of what's happening on the engine front. This was the yet-to-be-announced deal for Sauber to run customer Ferrari engines, and Herbert said in his book the idea of driving a car that had been developed with his input and powered by a Grand Prix-winning Ferrari engine was very exciting. Johnny said Peter Sauber had been working on the Ferrari deal for two years by this point, and that in the original plan, Ferrari would design the engine and gearbox, and then a new in-house company called Sauber Petronas Engineering would build them. Matt, we... We know in the end this would be a simpler long-term customer deal for older spec Ferrari engines badged by Petronas. Even with what it ended up becoming, was this a good deal for Sauber? The weird thing is, is with this at the time when it was actually announced as Ferrari engines, I remember thinking, wow, that's going to be so game-changing for Sauber, without really thinking well, it didn't exactly change the world for Minardi or the Scuderia <laughs> Italia Lola thing a couple of years earlier. And there had been like recent Ferrari customer deals that made no difference to rubbish teams. So... But this was this did turn out to be something a bit different. It was a proper close alliance between Ferrari and Sauber in political terms, if nothing else. Uh, Sauber had sort of bounced around a bit. It should have been Mercedes. It picked up Ford at not a great time. It turned out this was actually a deal that was going to set up Sauber's best days under its own name. And so maybe, yeah, my naive, yeah, Ferrari engines, customer deal, that'll be great feeling at the time was, was absolutely right because it, it set Sauber up to be a very respectable midfielder in a very Sauberish sort of way for the, right through to its BMW era. Now, the reason Sauber was in the market for a new engine partner was because it was losing that works Ford status, uh, Matt mentioned there, to Stuart Grand Prix, which was coming in for 97 with a five-year Ford engine deal. As part of that, Jackie Stewart was pretty clear in public that he didn't think Ford should supply its top V10 engine to any other teams until it had proved itself to be reliable and competitive. The Sauber situation had come up early in Jackie's discussions with Ford about starting the team the previous year, with Ford keen on the idea to keep Sauber as a second team, effectively to sit in reserve in case things didn't work out with Stewart. Jackie said in his book, Winning is Not Enough, that uh, this was the moment where you have to draw a line in the sand and be firm. He told Ford that retaining Sauber would be a deal breaker because his team needed Ford's total focus and total commitment. Ford was won over, but Jackie said things got awkward when nobody relayed that message to Sauber. So Jackie was put in what he called the awful position of having to deliver that news to Peter Sauber himself. Ben, do you think Jackie was right to put his foot down with Ford about this? Uh, difficult to feel sympathy for him in the first place for being put in that awful position because he's creating that position for himself. <laughs> That's a good point. But, but also, there's this whole thing when manufacturers involved in Formula One and they don't have they don't have teams falling over themselves to be customers. They're like, yeah, yeah, we don't need customers. It's a distraction. You know, we need full focus on the one team to develop the product, and then. Ultimately, when they have more customers or their works team agrees to them having customers, they go, yeah, yeah, it's great. We've got loads of customers because we get more data. We get more money coming in. It's, you know, all gravy for the program. So 
to me, it just seems a bit like Stuart politicking and saying, well, actually, because I'm starting a brand new team up, I might get shown up by Sauber because they're an established team. They were the Mercedes team at one point. You know, we could we could get embarrassed. So I think he's gone full hard sell on Ford to to avoid getting shown up in the early period when Stuart were. I mean, ultimately, the project worked out reasonably well, but they were obviously a bit crap to start with. And I think he was worried about the optics of that. But ultimately, I think it's better if you objectively to have customer teams with an engine program because it is just a way of of gathering more information and feeding that back in and if you've done the deal right those customers should be supplementing your budget and that benefits the works team looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We'll stick with uh, Stuart Chat because F1's incoming team was making plenty of headlines around this time. But also, I have to say, we get asked a lot when we're going to talk about Stuart Moore. So we're going to milk it here because we've got an opportunity. Um, I, th- I, I think we can say that the, the Stuart 1997 story um, might be coming up soon in a future series. The team hadn't sorted its driver lineup at this point in 96, but its number one target over the Estoril weekend was none other than the recently dropped by Williams, soon to be world champion, Damon Hill. Jackie knew it was a long shot, telling the BBC over the weekend that uh, it would be presumptuous to think Stuart GP were in with a shot of getting Hill, but he said the team needed to put the feelers out to establish if Hill would even be interested in coming to a new team. Stewart hoped that the chance for Hill to play a role in the formation of the team would appeal and he said by hook or by crook we would love to try and do everything in our power to get him. Jackie added in his book that Hill's salary demands were substantial but he said with Ford's support it was affordable. As we know, especially those of you who listened to our full episode on Williams dumping Hill and what he did next, Damon decided the risk of joining a team, a new team was too much although we won't go over the Arrows deal again today. Ben, we discussed this a bit in that Williams Dumped Hill episode, but you weren't on that, so you can bring your Hill fan perspective now. Looking at how Stuart performed compared to Arrows in 97, and given you just used the word a bit crap when we were talking about it a minute ago, (laughs) was Damon really better off going to an established team uh, over this well-funded newcomer? Well, in, in the short term marginally so I mean, he had a good 97 in a like very up and down car I mean at the time I thought the arrows move was absolutely insane but we subsequently you know learned that you know Damon had better options but at this point you know he's getting on a bit he's he's trying to leverage the fact that he's about to win the world championship get paid his worth I wish he'd gone to McLaren but Ron wouldn't pay and I remember doing an interview for Autosport with Damon where he talked about that. Um, he was he was very hard sold about the, the Arrows basically being a Benetton copy. So I think that kind of convinced him. And I can understand his reticence about the brand new team. That would have, it is a gamble. I think it would have worked out probably about the same given where Stuart got to and obviously where Jordan were when he ended up there. So it's much of a muchness in hindsight. 
but yeah but at the time i think you know i'm kind of the fan in me wishes he'd just swallowed his pride and taken the mclaren deal on lots of lovely bonuses you know people like kimi raikkonen later in their career they managed to work quite well on you know podium and win bonuses with a with a smaller contract so i wish damon had gone for that I think Damon at Stewart is a really big, not maybe missed opportunity, but kind of fascinating, untold might have been story because I could see it really working. I mean, this is why we need Ed Straw to turn up having done more research than all of us except Glenn combined and go, well, the exact percentage that Arrows versus Stewart were off the pace that season is this. And actually, Arrows <laughs> was really good. My instinct is that Arrows had... I think Arrows was slightly better, wasn't I think it, it had it much lower better. lows. I don't think... I th- Stuart blew up a lot, but I don't think yeah. it was ever as abysmal as Arrows was at its, at its low points. And Barrichello was qualifying it all right quite quickly. Yeah, and obviously both teams are on Bridgestones. So yeah. once Stuart got the hang of itself in the second half of the year on a good Bridgestone weekend, it, you know, the Stuarts were right up there. In this interview I did with Damon, what, 10, nearly 15 years ago, now he never mentioned Stuart. So <laughs> it's obviously not something that really he ever took that seriously. No. <laughs> yeah, but if you've read Damon's book, there's a lot of things he's forgotten. <laughs> That's true. Actually, actually, sorry, I'll just, I'll, before Matt comes back in, to prove my point, and I don't think I've included this in the script, when Damon talks about the Villeneuve move, he thinks that he's behind it. He thinks it's for the lead. This is in the book. He thinks it was for the lead and he was running third and got to watch it. He's remembered it happening in front of him. And he thinks he finished third in this race, not second. Oh, Damon. (laughs) He's had quite a lot go on in life, though, hasn't he? It's it's still a great book. If you haven't read it, you definitely should. I do remember a few things and they're going, that definitely wasn't how that happened. But it more than makes up for it with how he explains the story yeah. but yeah i just thought him and jackie stewart good respectful relationship nice little storyline there as well i think if he'd been alongside barrichello barrichello would be much faster than him because i think rubens at stewart was peak rubens but um yeah i kind of wish wish that had happened but i think it would have been much less of a waste of his time than arrows was maybe he would have stuck around and won for jaguar let's not go too far no <laughs> <laughs> no maybe not i think that's probably no. a stretch the- undermine my argument forever now I did like that Jackie was doing the full hard sell on this weekend, though. There's that, that great footage of that interview he gives in the hospitality, and you can see the red wine laid out just behind him. And I love that the hospitality unit is basically a tent. It's not like these massive trucks with their, their posh interiors and, and glass that we get used to now. 30 years ago, it was like, yeah, here's an awning. Let's try and posh up the awning. That's what it was. All the teams had sort of what you'd call carting awnings now. Even Williams, yeah. like their, their sort of plush Rothmans hospitality, as you say, was a, a glorified tent. And you can see it blowing in the wind behind him as well as he's <laughs> trying to say, oh, we'd love to have Damon. Yeah, but I mean, I think it'd be presumptuous to say we could get a signature from him. Yeah, You need a few more, you need a few more pegs in your budget first to hold down your awning. <laughs> before we come to the other team that publicly chased Hill before he went to Arrows, we'll stick with Stuart uh, and its efforts to complete a driver line up. Uh, Jackie said in his book that the team had three key criteria for their drivers. They had to be desirable, available and affordable. Uh, Hill was the number one choice for the lead role, while the target for the second seat was Jan Magnussen, who'd earned a phenomenal reputation in F3, but at this point only had one stand in F1 start to his name with McLaren from 1995. Magnussen had blitzed British F3 in 1994 for Paul Stewart Racing, the forerunner to Stewart GP. And Jackie Stewart had called him the best driver I have ever seen, including Ayrton Senna. However, Jackie wasn't only full of praise for the man we now know as Kevin's dad. Uh, Over the Portuguese GP weekend, he called Magnussen's uh, commitment into question very publicly. 
Uh, Jackie said uh, Jan needed to totally commit himself to the job and he expressed doubts if that had been happening up to this point. Stuart added he needs to make up his mind that he wants to be a top line racing driver and the sacrifices it takes are not easy for someone with his lifestyle. He's not a disciplined person, but that's the only issue he has to address. I have the highest regard for his talent, but being talented is not enough. He has to be as fit as Michael Schumacher, who isn't smoking cigarettes. What a line. Um, Matt, what did you think of Jackie going so hard on a driver that... At this stage, he hasn't even signed yet. I think Jackie Stewart did Magnussen no favours in the end. Okay, he got him into F1, but that Ayrton Senna comparison F3, okay, Magnussen's F3 championship was very dominant, but that Ayrton Senna comparison, what a thing to hang around a young driver's neck at that point, said in the year that Senna had died as well in 94. Just, it created so much expectation. And okay, his junior career was good, but he was a little bit iffy when he went to the DTM and ITC with Mercedes. His... um car indy car stand instant with penske and hogan penske was like had some okay moments but it was like Mwah. he was great compared to mark blundell when he stood in for mika hacken at mclaren at aida at the end of 95 but there wasn't like this wasn't senna stuff apart from what jackie stewart had said and even in the mid 90s when it was cool to smoke cigarettes as i remember from being a teenager who couldn't quite bring himself to smoke but thought all the cool kids did an F1 driver shouldn't be doing that. You knew an F1 driver shouldn't be doing that. So the fact his future boss was saying that was like an obvious, yeah, this is a, this is a worrying sign for this guy you've declared to be the greatest natural talent you've ever seen. So, yeah, actually inappropriate for a guy you haven't signed yet, but appropriate if you're his mentor. But you're also the mentor that's built up this completely unrealistic over-emotional expectation for him. So, yeah, give him a break. And then he sacked him <laughs> a year and a half later. <laughs> You can understand why he was so excited about him, though. I remember going to Brands Hatch to support my dad, who was racing Caterhams in this period. And his Caterham race was a support race to British F3. And I watched Magnussen just dominate the field, a field that included Mark Hughes's brother, Warren, actually, and just being like so impressed with this guy. Um, and so this would have been what I'd have been eight, eight or nine. And just thinking like, wow. And then remembering the name from that event and seeing him crop up in F1 and thinking, oh, okay, this guy's, he's made it. He's going to be amazing. And it was just so disappointing to see it not, not work out. And obviously Jackie would have, you know, been inside because it was his team. I guess it's like you get kind of pets, don't you? You see, you, you see a super talent and you think, oh yeah, with just a bit of polishing, this guy's going to be amazing. But unfortunately there just wasn't enough polish. I, uh, I covered kind of kevin's rise into uh into f1 so uh i covered him a bit when he did some f3 euro series guest appearances he won a race actually reverse grid race and then covered, I covered his... him in british f3 as well yeah so actually we we both must have overlapped at that point yeah yeah we would, have, we would have done and i obviously covered his formula renault 3.5 championship by which point he was a mclaren junior and he's testing the mclaren car huh. and, kevin... and my sister was his uh data engineer because he was racing for Carlin, I think. This this is just the, the Ben Anderson family tree, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, that Brands Hatch <laughs> event sounds good. We had Ben's dad, Kevin Magnuson's dad, Mark Hughes's brother. Who else Who else was yeah. there that day? Um, <laughs> but yeah, Kevin said that, you know, he, his dad, and I think this backs up what Jackie said, Jan told Kevin all the things not to do if you want to be an F1 driver. <laughs> uh, so Kevin said he, he got to learn a lot. Although some of it sounds quite obvious, like don't smoke. 
uh, <laughs> from his dad saying, look, you know, I wasn't serious enough when I was coming up yeah. the ranks. This is how serious you've got to be. So Jan at least took those lessons and applied them to Kevin. Um, so some benefit came from it. Uh, let's get back to Damon Hill, though, uh, because as well as uh, Stuart, the other team that wasn't shy about trying to sign him was Jordan. There were talks at the time, but I think because they ended up doing the deal a year later and because neither of them have the best memories, both Eddie Jordan and Damon haven't done a great job of recalling their first round of talks in any interviews or all their books. Um, so to help us fill in the gaps, I spoke to former Jordan commercial chief Ian Phillips to find out how close Jordan and Hill really were to doing a deal for 1997. To be honest, uh, we didn't we didn't get close. Uh, I was the one that wanted it to happen. Um, Eddie and Damon didn't really get on. Uh, Eddie wasn't the slightest bit interested, um, and. Damon, not really uh, do I want it. They they fell out during Formula 3000, I think. Anyway, um, I I had this feeling. But one, there was a pressure from Benson Hedges. And so we they obviously wanted us to have a British driver, uh, if at all possible. And I, I, the one thing that was missing from the team and why they listened to me a year later was we had nobody at any level in the team who'd ever won a Grand Prix. And I felt that that is what we needed. And, and Damon being a wise young young lad, um, <clears throat> I thought would, would have brought uh, that ingredient to the, to the team. But it has to be said, we didn't really get very far. Uh, I say because Damon and EJ, neither of them really wanted it to happen. Damon's manager, uh, <clears throat> a dodgy solicitor called Michael Breen, uh, was just the greediest man uh, on earth. And, you know, and Tom Walkinshaw was a great friend of both mine and EJ's. And uh, he wanted to make sure uh, he thought it would be a good thing for him rather than us. Uh, and Tom went promising lots of things that, frankly, he hadn't got, but that was Tom's way of doing it. Um, and, and Breen fell for it, hook, line and sinker. You know, I have to say, it was as much as I wanted it. There, there was no enthusiasm anywhere else. So there you go, Ben. We've, we've filled in some of the, the gaps left by the poorest memories of Eddie Jordan and Damon Hill. <laughs> as our resident uh, Damon superfan slash expert, how much of a missed opportunity do you think this was for Hill and Jordan to, to hook up a year earlier? Yeah, I mean, the Jordan was a was a good prospect, wasn't it? 97 was a was a breakout year for the team. Like I said before, I think if Damon, had, Damon and his management had been less kind of money-minded at this point, although I understand why, because of his advancing years and the need to kind of make hay while the sun shone, I wish he'd taken either the McLaren deal or this, this Jordan-Persia deal that nobody remembers being on the table had, had been the kind of backup. Because the Arrows thing, although I think the Arrows thing was a great thing for Damon to show he could perform very well in basically a rubbish team, and show it wasn't just like a you know an Adrian Newey Williams product. I just think it would have it would have been great to see him further up the grid 
as the world champion with the number one on his car. But of course, ultimately, Williams should never have let him go. Uh, he, they should have they should have been patient and stuck by him, and then he could have he could have defended it in ninety seven and denied Villeneuve his championship. Yeah, we're not getting into that again. Uh, <laughs> good to know that you're still not over the sacking. Oh, Ben, it was nearly thirty years ago. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> never, never going to get over it. <laughs> Right, one last signing for us to deal with then, and that was the announcement that Murray Walker would be joining ITV when it took over the UK's coverage of F1 from the BBC in 1997. But while this was announced near the end of the season, the deal had been completed very early in the year. Murray wrote in his book that he'd learned of the news about ITV taking over the F1 rights on the radio while he was driving and said he was flabbergasted when he heard it. You can hear Murray Walker saying flabbergasted, can't you? Uh, His assumption was that ITV would want a completely fresh team, so he thought that was it for him commentating on F1. But he said to his surprise and delight, ITV were quick to call him and immediately made him an offer to come over as the lead commentator, paying him a lot more money than he was on with the BBC. Murray said he had to spend the whole year professing ignorance about his future as the media speculated and campaigns were launched trying to get ITV to sign him when in fact they already had. And he said while those media campaigns were irrelevant because the deal was already done, he found it heartwarming that he had so much support to carry on. Matt, I don't actually know where you stand on on late era Murray Walker, but how important to you was it that ITV kept him as the lead commentator in the UK? Oh, it was one of the many things in the mid-90s I was really contrary about. I wasn't much of a Murray fan at that point. Doesn't surprise yeah, me. It, I just found it all a little bit pro-mance all and, you know, all of that sort of thing. No, <laughs> just a bit too uh, in-your-face patriotic sometimes. I, but on reflection, Murray was obviously absolutely brilliant for F1, iconic. He was of his time, and his some of his commentary doesn't stand the test of time, but he was he was vital to F1's rise in the UK. Given the amount of opposition to F1 going to a channel with adverts on it, the sacrilege of that to not bring money with them would have just been uh, such a disaster publicity-wise. So, so much tabloid angst that followed that. So, yeah, it was absolutely vital. But it was also obvious it was going to happen unless he did a kind of uh, original Bake Off lineup stomp over changing channels. That was the the only way that it wasn't going to happen was if uh, Murray had dug his heels and turned down the money. Oh, I didn't see that coming, a bake-off comparison. Um, but no, I agree. Murray is Mal and Sue. Yeah. <laughs> or isn't, actually. No. He took the money. No, exactly. Oh, yeah. Good for him. I, all right, let's find someone who loved Murray Walker at the time. Uh, me. Uh, <laughs> I would say, uh, I think it was really important. I, I think, that, but the key thing, like, like you said there, Matt, was ITV felt like such a jarring change to so many people anyway, because to most people at this point, F1 on the BBC was all they knew. Uh, so there needed to be some element of continuity. And if there was one thing you were going to take from the BBC and bring it over to ITV, it had to be that voice. And it had it had to be Murray. And it just gave it that familiarity. Um, and then obviously they plugged in Martin Brundle as, a, I would say, an upgrade on Jonathan Palmer. Uh, <laughs> listening, listening back to Palmer's commentary, I think I was unfair on him at the time. He, I, yeah. I didn't appreciate him. Uh, as a child, but he was better than I gave him credit for. But I still think Martin Brundle was was an upgrade. So I was very glad. Uh, I'd have been devastated if Murray had stopped at the end of 96. So glad they kept him on. So from something that did happen for 1997 to something that definitely didn't. Late 1996 was the setting for the first attempt. I can't believe this. 
by the Stefan GP team to get itself on the F1 grid. Team owner Zoran Stefanovic claimed he had started his team, had 65% of the budget in place already and was now hiring staff. He claimed that ex-Ferrari design office head and ex-40 technical director George Wrighton was one of those hires, although Wrighton clarified to Autosport that nothing was confirmed and that he'd just given Stefanovic some advice. Stefanovic claimed, and I think this was him thinking he was being modest, that Stefan GP was looking to be a middle-ranking team, nothing more, <laughs> but he didn't have any drivers or an engine deal, and his hopes were dealt what I think was a, a final blow, at least at that stage, when Bernie Eccleston declined to even meet with him. We shouldn't read, but it's not a final blow, is it? Because in the 2010s, Stefanovic kept trying to enter F1 again, and in a 2009 interview with Race Car Engineering about his new plans... He said of his first attempt that it was not without its achievements as we managed to secure proper funding and it was just a case of all the pieces could not quite fall into place. Ben, if Stefan GP had been granted an entry for 1997, might that have changed the way we view Lola's attempt at F1 from that season? <laughs> well, firstly, can I say what a find this is? Because I remember I remember the Stefan GP 2010s attempt. They were going to take over the Toyota mothball project, yep. weren't they? Yeah. And thinking at the time, you know, working at Autosport, oh, this, what a chance, sir. This is never going to fly. And obviously it didn't. But to think actually many years before, he'd already set his stall out and Bernie had gone. I was stunned when I found this. Yeah, Bernie'd already got his, got his number and gone, no way, mate. It would just, it made me think of that Imola. 99 episode we did with the Nigerian prince who was doubting himself as a, <laughs> as the next big thing in F1 and it was like no it's just not going to happen so yeah just a chancer I think you know there there must have been just no substance to it there were obviously those Bernie would say there was always another billionaire obviously some fake billionaires as well looking to get in F1 unambitiously just to have a piece of the limelight at least the load of thing I mean I've really liked that as a as a concept, you know, with the the recognisable Mastercard sponsorship and a sort of you know proper racing name as a constructor, so at least they made an attempt. It was a bad attempt, but an attempt to do things properly. I think if uh, well, I think if Stefan GP had somehow made it onto the grid, uh, I think that would have kind of been the end of Formula One as we know it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Bernie had standards. That would have probably been that would have probably been a really desperate move. I can't I can't imagine there was any real real weight behind his two attempts to, to get in. Let's move on to something that would be on the grid in 1997 then. As Renault uh, revealed, it was pulling out all the stops for what would be its final season in F1. Technical director Bernard Dudo said Renault absolutely had to win the championship in its final season, so it would be developing a completely new engine. Uh, the RS9 unit would have a wider V angle and be 5 to 10 kilos lighter than the 96 engine, which Dudo said was not the best engine we have made at Renault Sport. The aim was to lower the centre of gravity and then get the delicate balance right between saving weight and not making the engine too fragile. Matt, I was surprised by that comment about the 96 engine, and in my research, I couldn't find anyone from Williams who ever suggested that that year's Renault was a bit below par. Do you think Dudo was maybe being harsh on himself and his his team at Renault Sport there? 
Yeah, it totally jarred with my memory of Renault being obviously by far the best thing in 96. But I think he probably was being realistic. It's just the opposition was so bad at that point. Not so much the engine opposition, but the kind of teams they were hamstrung by at the time. You know, Ferrari just switched to a V10. Its car was a disaster, always blowing up at that point. McLaren wasn't yet ready to use what Mercedes was coming up with, so he couldn't really judge if Mercedes was really, really that good yet. I remember in 96, the Peugeot was said to have really good top end and some really impressive straight line speeds, but the Jordan wasn't overall good enough to make the most of it. So, And obviously, Honda was still a heavy customer Mugen arrangement at that point. So there wasn't a lot of, a lot of opposition. Fair play to Dudo for noticing that Renault could do better in that circumstance because I, I trust his judgment there. If he says that wasn't a great engine, still great enough to beat everybody else when in the back of a Williams. But yeah, I'll trust, I'll trust his opinion. Yeah, it's probably an indicator of why Renault was so good in this period, not resting on their laurels. Let's get to the track action then. At the front of the grid, just nine thousandths of a second separated the Williams drivers, with Hill claiming what would be could be a vital pole position for a race where he could be crowned world champion if he prevented Villeneuve getting the 13-point gap between them down to less than 10. Villeneuve was frustrated to be so close, although he admitted that if he went out knowing he just needed to be a uh, hundredth of a second faster, he'd probably crash trying to find that time. And uh, his hopes of getting a final run were thwarted by late rain. Villeneuve released a book about that 1996 season, which obviously I have in both hardback and paperback. And uh, in there, he said the Renault engineers told him the gap was the equivalent of 75 centimetres on the track. Meanwhile, Hill called the margin scary and said he knew Villeneuve would be quick at Estoril. It was, it was one of the few tracks he knew really well from testing. Damon said in his book that it was in the back of his mind that all he had to do was finish second to Villeneuve in the two remaining races to wrap up the championship in Japan. But he also noticed that Estoril was being touted as a nice place to come and see Damon win the championship. So he was aware that there was a larger than usual contingent of British fans that had made their way to Portugal. Ben, how were you feeling about that qualifying result? Did it make you confident that um, Damon would get the job done from pole or a little apprehensive that Villeneuve was so close? Uh, I was sweating pretty much all the <laughs> way through the second half of this season. He, Damon was basically Jensen buttoning his way to the world championship. Wasn't he? <laughs> you know, let's be, let's be fair. Great start to the season and then not such a great end to it. Uh, and I, was, I was really annoyed when he messed up Monza. And I was just constantly, I was like him, counting the points gap, thinking all the time, you know, wouldn't it have been, would it have been calculated back then or abacus? Just like, yeah, it just needs, just do enough. We had calculators in the 90s, Ben. Yeah, it was the 90s. Did I? I don't know. Yeah, I guess I did. Yeah, my, fir- my first calculator or whatever uh, would have been massive. Um, yes, and the only thing that, that gave me hope is that even though he was sort of struggling, and I I get you know the weight of it and everything else, you know Jensen talked about that, didn't he? You know you don't you deny it at the time, but later you go, yeah, like the pressure of getting the job done, it, it weighs heavy, and you tighten up. He was still fast. His qualifying record was good, so I always felt that even though Villeneuve was putting him under more pressure, and Damon was messing up some of the races, the fact he was still getting pole positions that. That was a massive crutch for me to lean on as I desperately willed him to get over the line. Another set of teammates that were relatively close together were the Ferraris of Michael Schumacher and Eddie Irvine. And we didn't say that much in 1996. They were third and fifth on the grid, separated by a bit more than the nine thousandths between the Williams drivers. Although 
it was only just over a tenth between them, which was the closest Irvine had got to Schumacher since out-qualifying him for their first race together in Australia at the start of the year. Irvine put this down to him getting some rare testing prior to Portugal, which he only got because Schumacher was given a week off to move house. Uh, Eddie said, I could be quick in the car if I'm given enough testing. Every time I've tested before a race, I've gone much better. He added in his 1999 book, Life in the Fast Lane, that he spent that first year at Ferrari on the beach while Michael did all the testing and that he got increasingly lost with the car and there was nothing I could do except sit it out and wait for an opportunity to make progress. Schumacher praised Irvine for putting up with being left on the sidelines during most of the year, saying his attitude was impressive. And Michael even admitted that with the car being so bad, he'd only been thinking of the one direction that's important to me. I could not allow any situation where we would take away some development just to make things more equal. Matt, given Irvine was right up there in the top five here off the back of that testing, should Ferrari have given him a bit more time in the car in that first year? Yes, yeah, it's it. So when we, whenever we come to Schumacher and Irvine at Ferrari, I just think, wow, think how much the culture of uh, utterly dominant number one subjugating a number two shamelessly has changed over the decades since. But you know, think back to like so many multiple world champion drivers whose number two was a complete irrelevance, and they were completely shameless about vetoing a, a choice of teammate or taking all the testing or. Yeah, some of those gaps in priority within teams between the champion driver and whoever the other guy was were were enormous. And it, it lasted as long as the mid-90s and Schumacher was just absolutely flat out in treating Irvine as uh, someone who really shouldn't be allowed near the car in testing in, in case he took up some of my time or did something wrong in an era of unlimited testing as well, which is <laughs> yeah, good the other, the, it's not like they're sharing three days pre-season and, and, and Irvine's taking up valuable time. Yeah, just... In retrospect, looking back, madness. I'm glad that era's changed. I think even if a, a mid-2020s number one driver really wanted their teammate to not be allowed to have any testing, if Max Verstappen might think that these days, who knows? It, they wouldn't be shameless enough to say it outright. Yeah, I, I think I would at least, I guess, at least Michael was upfront about it. I love the quote just being like, sorry, the car's so bad, I can't afford to let any time go to helping this guy. It's yeah. all got to be about me. Uh, let's get into the race then. And things were looking great for Hill when he kept the lead into turn one, fending off a sort of feisty uh, Jean Alesi at the start. Um, Villeneuve was jumped by Alesi's Benetton and Schumacher's Ferrari. It took Villeneuve 16 laps to find a way past Schumacher. And I think, as we all know by this point, he did it in memorable style. So let's listen to how the earlier mentioned Murray Walker and Jonathan Palmer called it on the BBC. Gets a little bit in the way there, that's Lavaggi, and he's getting even more in the way there. Now he really should be moving on, moving out of the way, he is desperately slow, he's there because of his money, and Schumacher should be driving around, and Schumacher's got a problem, he's slowing right up, yeah, look, and there's look, Villeneuve look, on the outside. Look left, it's Villeneuve going past, Jacques Villeneuve is taking Michael Schumacher, he's been trying to do it all through the race, it looks as though he's succeeding, but Lavaggi is, is in his way, Villeneuve cuts ahead of the Ferrari, fantastic bit of driving by both of them, Michael Schumacher coming back at him as they go into turn one. Giovanni Lavaggi nearly changed the course of the race. In fact, he has 
changed the course of the race now because Damon Hill on lap 17 is leading a Lacey still and a Lacey now is ahead of Jacques Villeneuve. That overtaking manoeuvre by Jacques Villeneuve is one of the most outstanding I have ever seen. To go round the outside of another driver, they both would have been doing 150-odd miles an hour. Villeneuve would not only have been on the outside, he would have been on the dirty line. But they don't come tougher than Villeneuve. Frank Williams would have been glowing at that manoeuvre down in the Williams garage to muscle it out, to keep going. Now, there's a fair chance that most of you will have seen this pass already, even if you weren't watching F1 back then. But for those of you who haven't, and because it's my show and it's a chance to talk up Villeneuve, let's go through it in detail. Schumacher was balked by the Minardi of Giovanni Lavaggi coming out of the rubbish double hairpin near the end of the lap. And Lavaggi stayed in the way into and through the final corner. Fearing that Villeneuve would get a run on him down the main straight, Schumacher hung back heading into the final corner. So Villeneuve pounced, arriving on the outside of the Ferrari and then sneaking ahead just in time as they charged down the straight to dart out from behind Lavaggi without getting held up himself. Schumacher said he was surprised when he looked in his mirror in the corner and couldn't see Villeneuve and then suddenly realised the Williams was alongside him. Ben, we know that you were rooting for the other Williams, but what did you think of this moment of, uh, frankly, supreme brilliance? Yeah, as I said at the start, I was I was genuinely impressed. You know, it's so it's so difficult to go round the outside of anyone, especially a driver who's properly good. I I guess you give you know a little bit of credit to well credit to the move happening for Schumacher kind of maybe making a bad decision to stay behind the back marker you know it, I can understand what he, I can understand his rationale leave it till the straight and just think oh that's not nothing's going to happen so it's a great piece of opportunism from Villeneuve and of course then for someone like Schumacher it's brain scrambling because it's like oh I've made the wrong decision and this guy's got a chance to jump me and of course, if you're Michael Schumacher, you never make the wrong decision. So that's one thing. And then it's embarrassing to get overtaken around the outside. You know, no one ever wants to be overtaken around the outside. It's, it must be soul destroying, especially if you're a double world champion. So, you know, I was I wasn't a Villeneuve fan, but I was a massive fan of this move. It's 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 kind of his Alonso 130R moment, isn't it? Villeneuve said in his 96 book that Schumacher was very fair and left just enough room and he added that he probably wouldn't have tried such a risky move on a lesser driver but he felt with Schumacher he could have faith that he wouldn't do anything unexpected. He didn't think that at Jerez 97 did he? I was going to say very the- unusual for Schumacher to be so fair. <laughs> I have to say, when you watch this back and you see how close the outside barrier is at that corner, I'd like to think that even Michael Schumacher wouldn't consider running someone off the road there. It was, it was terrifying. Well, probably I'll put out a clip on social media because they had a camera on that barrier. Not for this move, but I think they show the end of the opening lap from that camera. And you're going, hang on, that's a really fast 180 degree corner. And this is how close the barrier is. It's, it's terrifying. So, wow. yeah. Maybe if the maybe if the championship was on the line, Schumacher would have gone. Yeah, go on, off you go <laughs> into the barrier. <laughs> yeah. The fact he was just in a rubbish Ferrari and it wasn't for anything important. He was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, thank goodness. Um, so in that book we mentioned, Villeneuve claimed Schumacher said the move was fun, although we've since learned that wasn't the case. In interviews years later, Villeneuve said Schumacher was angry and pissed off, and that he went up to Jacques afterwards, telling him the move was dangerous and stupid. 
Michael did at least agree with one thing Villeneuve said in the book, telling Jacques that he was lucky it was him he was overtaking, otherwise there would have been a big crash. This story about Schumacher confronting uh, Villeneuve is backed up by Hill, who wrote in his autobiography that Schumacher had a word with Villeneuve before the podium and did indeed call the move dangerous. Damon saw the funny side, saying he was thinking, good on you, Jacques, and that he'd humiliated Schumacher and done him up like a kipper. In public at the time, Schumacher called it a scary moment, saying that he didn't have as much grip as Villeneuve had, but because their wheels were interlocked, he couldn't back off because then they would have tangled and it would have been a big one. So he said he just hoped my car would grip enough and fortunately it did. Matt, what do you make of how Schumacher handled this? Do you think he overreacted? Oh, it's just it's so common for when Schumacher gets Schumachered by somebody else, he's really churlish about it. That's one thing. <laughs> I, yeah, he's he wasn't he wasn't the most gracious when someone embarrassed him. I think even by world champion standards, I think that is a fair thing to say. He did have a point, like it's, like you guys have said, that was a terrifying corner. This would have been a, a ferociously big accident, especially if, the, if Villeneuve had gone into the sky there. That would not have been a, a happy ending at all. But uh, yeah, Schumacher wasn't particularly thinking about what would happen if our wheels interlocked every time he weaved someone off the grid, was he? At, at, at most circuits, most Grand Prix starts in the middle part of his career. So It's okay if it's on his terms. Yeah, yeah, a bit rich coming for Schumacher, but he's he's not the only great driver to have been a bit sulky when someone embarrassed him doing the sort of thing that he did to other people. Yeah, it sort of feels like he's 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 taken conveniently taken that position of drivers in the much more dangerous 70s or 80s or whatever where there's this etiquette and you're not allowed to do certain moves because it just puts po- puts both of you in in danger and he's like, "Oh, how, how dare you do this kind of thing? You just can't do it because you know, if it wasn't if it wasn't for a driver of my quality, we'd both be you know dead or have limbs hanging off or whatever. But of course, as Matt said, then when when uh, as as his career developed, and I guess the cars got a little bit safer as well, Schumacher was the first to be like, "Yeah, I'm going to squeeze that space off and ask you to either crash into the pit wall or whatever, or just back off." So just a just a position of convenience, I think, to, to for Schumacher to try and save himself from embarrassment. And I lapped this up, obviously being a Hill fan and also <laughs> even as a youngster recognising that Schumacher, he just came across, I don't think he was really like this, but on TV he came across so arrogantly, like it was his track and no one else had the right to occupy the same space as him. I guess maybe he picked that up from Senna before as well, because Senna had trying to put him in his place a few years previous. So I kind of get it now, but yeah, any, any opportunity there was for Schumacher to be shown up. I just, I just lapped it up. Yeah. And I, I think, as, as you guys have kind of mentioned, certainly not the only great F1 driver who uh, enacted a bit of double standards when he suited when it suited him. Now, famously, Villeneuve had claimed ahead of time that he thought he'd be able to pass someone in this corner around the outside. Although uh, even Jack himself has been a little inconsistent over the years as to whether he made this prediction during pre-season testing or earlier in the race weekend itself. But regardless of when he said it, the response from his team was laughter. And they told him that if he tried it, they'd have to come and pick him out of the barrier. The reason Villeneuve felt an outside pass was possible here was because the corner reminded him of an oval, which obviously he'd raced on in IndyCar. Villeneuve's engineer, Jock Clear, said he was so committed to using the final corner as an overtaking spot that they spent two weeks working out how to set the car up to make it possible. Clear mentioned this to our very own Mark Hughes in a feature for Motorsport magazine back in 96, saying, 
He was in a position where he had absolute confidence in what the car was going to do and was quite happy to take chances other drivers weren't. He'd said, I want to be able to pass people round the outside there. We'd agreed how to set the car up that way, and when the moment came, he didn't even have to think about it. Hill told Motorsport magazine in 2009 for a, a teammate's feature about Villeneuve that when he heard the IndyCar Oval's logic, he and everyone else thought, this guy doesn't understand what F1 is about. It's not like oval racing, but Jacques was adamant it could be done. Villeneuve said the element of surprise was vital and that he had to launch an attack when Schumacher wouldn't be expecting it. He wrote in his 1996 book that he hadn't realised their wheels got so close because I was too busy finishing off the manoeuvre. Matt, you've watched a lot of oval racing in your time. Do you think Villeneuve's experience of IndyCar racing made any difference here? I think he's overselling it slightly, but he does have a point. Not so much because it's the corners like an oval as such, because like how many ovals have a ridiculous tight double hairpin uphill corkscrew nonsense feeding into them where you're coming onto that corner at about 20, 20 miles an hour then accelerating? They but, also don't tend to turn right either. <laughs> well, this is true, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't confuse him in this move. But what would have been familiar was um, a car being blocked in traffic. That felt like a very one-mile oval sort of thing. There's a bit of Villeneuve's brain here probably going, that's not Schumacher and a Ferrari and a Minardi. That's uh, Alonso Jr. being held up by a Peyton coin car at Milwaukee or something. And knowing It's that very Milwaukee, isn't it? It is, isn't it? That car's lost momentum. I've got a chance around the outside because there's someone really slow in the way. I think that it makes it a very IndyCar oval move. Now, one overtaking move that was far more clumsy than Villeneuve's uh, was Mika Hakkinen's attempt to pass McLaren teammate David Coulthard into that rubbish little double hairpin that Matt just mentioned. Clear footage of this incident doesn't exist, but Hakkinen just seemed to run into the back of DC, who, as I mentioned, gave him the middle finger as Mika drove past. To make matters worse for McLaren, Hakkinen's terminally damaged car held Coulthard's up in the pits, and in a haste to get Coulthard back out onto the track, his mechanics missed that he had a puncture, so he was sent back out with a flat tyre. Coulthard said the move wasn't on, where, while Hakkinen said he had room to try and called it a racing incident. I always think that it's usually you can identify the guilty party by the person who calls it a racing incident. <laughs> um, as I say, we can't really assess the incident because we can't see it clearly, but DC mentioned what happened afterwards in his book, so let's talk about that. He said Ron Dennis summoned both drivers but spoke to Coulthard on his own first to hear what you have to say. And Coulthard seemed to take offence when Ron said he then wanted to hear Hakkinen's side as well. Coulthard wrote that he took that to mean Ron didn't trust him, even if he realised years later that the team boss obviously has to hear both sides of the story. But Ben, is that a window perhaps into how paranoid Coulthard already felt about his standing at McLaren? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the the thing that stands out to me is that that's the, even though there's not great footage of it, that's DC using the patented middle finger. You know, that became a very famous thing later, didn't it, against Schumacher. So maybe he was just practising for the future. Maybe he was willing it to existence like Villeneuve did his past <laughs> at some point earlier in his career. I mean, McLaren was always a bit of a strange team, wasn't it, under Ron, had its own quirks. I mean, I think DC would have been used to that because Williams wasn't exactly the most sensible with its drivers and how it handled them so maybe he was hoping that going to McLaren would be a break from that kind of management pressure and then getting hauled in kind of gave him some bad flashbacks I don't know but I mean you know like you said it makes sense that the team boss would want to speak to both maybe independently and then just make a ruling because how whoever's at fault and obviously Hakkinen was at fault Damon used to say he was the driver that would crash into you in the junior categories and then just like come up and be all 
cheery with you. So maybe DC was just discovering that. You know, it makes sense for Ron to do what he needs to do and, and just ensure that, you know, as team bosses all the way through Formula 1 history and still today say, you know, it's, it's unacceptable for teammates to collide with each other, whoever's at fault. Yeah, I think there's plenty of cases where Coulthard has a case for McLaren's treatment, perhaps not being that balanced, but I'm not sure not wanting to hear both sides of the story <laughs> in this incident is particularly out of order from Ron. Let's get back to the battle for the win then. Uh, Alacy's second place Benetton became a non-factor as his two-stop strategy made him no match for the three-stopping Williamses. The gap between Hill and Villeneuve had been over 15 seconds before their first stops, but Villeneuve had that down to almost nothing by the time they got to the third stops, only dropping back to preserve his tyres once he started suffering in dirty air. Hill was held up slightly a couple of laps before his stop by Hackenden's limping McLaren, and then had a slower stop than Villeneuve, who absolutely nailed his in-lap coming in a lap after him. And it was just enough for Villeneuve to make it to turn one ahead, with Hill initially not realising it was Jack and thinking it was a Tyrrell or something that wouldn't get out of his way. Hill said he was shocked to have lost the lead, and when Villeneuve immediately pulled away from him, even on colder tyres, Damon realised he was flying and there was nothing I could do about him. Williams's Patrick Head was uh, predictably blunt about how he saw the battle, saying... Villeneuve had speed that Damon did not have on the day, although he said he'd still bet his life savings on Hill winning the title in Japan. Matt, do you think this was just a case of Villeneuve being a man on a mission or did Damon let this one slip through his fingers? It's a bit of both, but one of the reasons that I I said at the outset that my main memory from this isn't so much the past, it's that belief in Villeneuve I had after this race. And that's because I think the fact that Villeneuve went on to win this race is kind of underappreciated. There weren't many people in mid-90s, hard-to-pass, strategy-based F1 who fell to fourth at the start of a race, fell as much as, I think, 17 seconds might have been his peak deficit to Hill, and still came back past those cars, jumping them in pits, or passing them with an all-time great move to make a victory happen from that position. The speed he showed in that race was was fantastic. It was, I would agree, this was one of his greatest days in F1. So... Yeah, he was on a mission. Also a circuit he knew very well, perhaps showed how much lack of circuit knowledge had held him back at other points during this year. He had done a phenomenal amount of winter testing at Estoril. But it's also a classic case of driver with nothing to lose can achieve something magical. Driver with everything to lose at that point looks rubbish in comparison. Um, Hill lost a lot of time in back markers. He was, this was not his greatest drive. He must have. It must be really hard to go into a race thinking I need to do just enough here and then you find you're leading it by miles and your main rival is a long way behind it must be quite hard not to then start to trip over yourself and you realize that main rival's getting closer now at the time as a as a 16 year old I uh, took this as ultimate evidence that Hill was terrible and wouldn't deserve the championship if he won it <laughs> looking back I do realize how that dare actually you Oh, yeah, well, it's, it's not 996 anymore, Ben. Um, looking back, I realised that actually, psychologically, Villeneuve could have... Villeneuve, it didn't matter if he had just stuffed it into the wall trying to pass Schumacher. No one would have actually cared that much. This was his first season in F1. He'd done really well to be as close to a title as he had at that point. Whereas if Hill had somehow not won this championship, that would have been absolutely catastrophic. So not Damon's greatest day, but also not really that reflective of, of Damon in that season overall probably up with Melbourne 96 and Hareth 97 and a few bits of BAR 2000 and Williams 98 lunacy one of Villeneuve's like top five F1 moments Ben do you think Villeneuve won it or Damon lost it I agree with Matt bit of both I think Damon 
you know this is this is the Pete Jensen button moment. It's like you know I've I've somehow come through into the lead unscathed. This is it. I can get get the job done. And you just have that tightening. You know, so many drivers over the years talk about you know thinking the car's making noises that it isn't making. It's going to let me down. You you just don't want to make a mistake. So it's it's definitely that classic. I've got everything to lose and I cannot. I cannot throw it away versus guy who's like, this is my only, only chance to keep it alive. I've got to go for it and hope that it sticks. So um, when those two situations come together, you get you get what what transpired. But I agree with Matt. It was it was a phenomenal performance from Villeneuve. He was capable of them. I grudgingly admit. I'll take that. Without wanting to be too harsh on Damon, you said that's his peak Jensen Button 2009 moment. I'd argue most of that summer was a long extended one because from that Hockenheim <laughs> win onwards, he was making very very heavy weather of things yeah arguably not as heavy weather as Villeneuve would make of 97 a, a year later but Yay. yeah Damon did throw quite a lot away between between Hockenheim and Suzuka that year yeah all right well let's not let's not uh let's not start throwing shade at Villeneuve's 97 season there's, there's no there's no as I always say there's no small print on the trophy just his name um <laughs> sorry same back- for Damon yeah okay back to uh, back to Damon Hill being rubbish then um Damon <laughs> suffered a scare in the closing laps when his engineers spotted rising temperatures of a clutch bearing and after realizing he couldn't live with Villeneuve uh, he backed off to make sure he claimed a valuable second place to keep the title battle very much in his favor heading to the Suzuka finale at the end of the season Hill was presented with the bearing in question and was told the team didn't know how it made it to the end of that race without failing if that had happened, uh, he'd have gone to Japan with a three-point lead instead of nine, back when there was only ten points for a win. As it was, you get the impression from looking back at what both drivers said at the time and have said subsequently that they knew it was probably a done deal for Damon uh, with one race to go. Villeneuve's attitude was that he just needed to win again and let the rest of the points fall where they may. And Hill said in his book that his attitude was the rather dull but sensible I knew enough about racing to understand it's not over until it's over. Ben, there's not a lot to hype up about a nine-point gap with only ten on the line, (laughs) especially when they're in a dominant car and they're probably going to be running at the front. So let's add some false tension here. Do you think the weekend in Suzuka would have played out any differently if if Hill's car had failed in Portugal and he'd gone to Japan with a three-point lead instead of nine? Well, firstly, I think you've explained why Damon was so embarrassed in Portugal because his clutch wasn't working properly. So no, imagine, no, no, no. imagine, into that. imagine all those trends after he lost the lead. <laughs> I, I look, I've done a lot of research into that, and as uh, everyone, transmissional everyone losses, pretty clear. No, 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 no. It's very clear. The problem only surfaced uh, once once he'd lost the lead, okay, and right. even Damon said he only felt a couple of funny shifts late in the race. It was actually just the team told him. Uh, it looked like it might fail. So you haven't got that excuse. Get back to answering the question. Yeah, it's a shame. Deflection hasn't <laughs> deflection hasn't worked. It's blown up in my face. Unlike his clutch. Um, yeah, so well, I mean, it's it's a good thing that they, from, from his point of view, that they they noticed the problem and changed it because otherwise that would have had a dramatic impact on Japan. I don't I don't see a theoretical smaller gap changing the outcome too much i mean that the, the clutch would have been fixed anyway so because it would have failed so they would have checked that and made sure damon's car was good and 
does the fact that the points gap is smaller in this hypothetical mean that Villeneuve somehow makes a better start in Japan? Probably you know, that's not. What co- <laughs> that's what cost him, really. So yeah. I think I think all roads lead to Rome, fortunately, for me. Yeah, I, I think Villeneuve actually, when it came to Suzuka, drove like the gap was three points. Anyway, he was so quick in qualifying and then then made a mess of things. And I think that's that's how that head-to-head would have gone at that point. The, the missing factor is... What would might Hill have felt even more pressure? Might Hill have somehow made a mess of qualifying and been a bit further down the grid? I, ultimately, I think if they're being closer, I can I can see both of them having found ways to trip up and stumble. Hill still wins the title, and I don't know, Alacy or someone wins the race. Oh no, Alacy had a horrendous Suzuka, didn't he? He didn't have that, that massive shunt at the start. Who was even second at Suzuka? Was it Schumacher or Hakkinen? It was it was it was Berger's Benetton that had a good start, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. 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 Berger nearly runs into Hill at the end yeah. of the first lap. <laughs> yes, that's came. it. Yeah, and I think Alacy's destroyed his car by then, if I remember rightly. But yeah, probably. Yeah, he crashed coming out of the second corner. <laughs> yeah, stuffs it into familiar. the wall. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, I think I'll give you that. Probably that uh, da- Damon would have perhaps driven a bit more tight, a bit less assured, but feel that they probably both just sort of stumble their way around Suzuka in a still dominant car. Um, it would have been more interesting. You know, there's a real vibe when you go back and look at the research here. Even though Damon hadn't won it in Portugal, there's very much a vibe from both sides uh, of the Williams garage and sort of from everybody looking on that, uh, as Ben said, all roads led to Rome or perhaps all roads led to Murray Walker having a lump in his throat. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah. Suzuka. <laughs> so let's leave it there then for Estoril 96. Always nice to get into one of the races that, as, uh, as Matt mentioned, qualifies for Jacques Villeneuve's greatest hits. Um, and I'm not talking about his music album there so it's a rare moment for me to bask in the glow of uh, Villeneuve doing good stuff so thanks to uh, Matt and Ben for enthusiastically volunteering to be part of this one that's us done for regular episodes in this series which means I can breathe a sigh of relief for five minutes before I realise it's time to start the research for series 10 I have got an episode list I haven't shared it with anyone yet but series 9 isn't finished as we'll have, we have two episodes to go and we'll be starting with our latest top 10 debate where we declare who were the top 10 Williams drivers of the V10 era. And I think it's fair to say Jack and Damon are probably included in that list. The Athletic.